Welcome to this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I am your host, Dr. Jessica Hockman. I am excited to have my husband and internal medicine physician, Dr. Michael Hockman, as this week's guest. We are going to talk about the benefits and drawbacks of asymptomatic testing. To tell you about Mike's qualifications, he completed his undergraduate studies at Princeton University and then graduated from Harvard Medical School. Mike also has an interest in public policy. He completed the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Fellowship and received his master's in public health at UCLA. Mike truly enjoys analyzing medical studies. He even founded an ongoing medical book series called 50 Studies Every Doctor Should Know. Mike is currently the inaugural CEO of a startup medical group providing street medicine to our homeless population. I am admittedly biased, but I find that Mike has a very good grasp at understanding complex public health issues. He is also incredibly humble, so I'm doing this introduction with him off mic. Welcome to another edition of Ask Dr. Jessica. Today, I am joined with my husband, Michael Hockman, and we are going to talk about testing, specifically asymptomatic testing or testing uh, when you do not have symptoms for COVID-19. Welcome, Michael Hockman. Thank you so much for having me. The idea of testing was very popular with the idea that we would contact trace, that by testing everybody um, before entering um, a location, if we found the positives, then we could you know, circle back and find out um, where the positives were coming from, and we could isolate those people and really help contain the spread. But now, um, I think there's a lot of questions arising because we are testing a lot, and I'm not certain that the juice is still worth the squeeze. Uh, we know with Omicron, it's so contagious. Um, there's been so many cases. And I'm not sure if contact tracing is still possible. And I just wanted to have a conversation with you about the idea of asymptomatic testing, um, the good about it, the, the negatives about it. Great. Look, it's a very important topic. And, you know, there's a lot of different reasons we do testing. If someone has symptoms, sometimes to guide treatment. Um, but the asymptomatic uh, testing with the goal of contact tracing, that's an important discussion. And whether it made sense in the beginning of the pandemic and now, things might have evolved quite a bit. Okay. Um, so, first, what is your general philosophy on testing? Um, do you think there are times when it is recommended? Well, th this relates to one of my general philosophies on healthcare, which actually, believe it or not, comes from my mom, which is don't go looking for trouble. So what that means is you do a test if, if there's a real reason to do it, if you have symptoms, if it's going to change your management, or if there's a compelling reason in someone who's asymptomatic to, to test. But to just test and not really know what you're going to do with the information actually, as we'll talk about, I'm sure today, can actually lead to more harm than good. Okay. So... I wanted to talk with you about the pros and cons of asymptomatic testing, specifically at schools, because I know a lot of us you know, have kids that are in schools and parents will tell me their kids are getting tested every week, for example. Um, can you tell me what, what might be the positives to doing this? Well, the idea of contact tracing has been used very successfully in other pandemics. It was very effective in stopping Ebola outbreaks and many other infectious diseases. So for severe illnesses that are not very common, um, the idea of tracking down cases makes a lot of sense and has been done very successfully. The second thing to say is, you know, if you draw it up perfectly in an experimental setting, there's 
tremendous potential with asymptomatic testing. If you tested everybody twice a day, the test was perfect, you could act on that result right away, the patient was going to quarantine 100% compliance, you could get very significant 80-90% reductions in spread. The problem is we live in a real world where those things are not reality. You can't test multiple times a day. Uh, you know, at best, um, a couple times a week, and even that, as we'll talk about, is very challenging to do. And more importantly, we don't get the results right away. There's often a lag with many of the tests that we're doing. Um, there can be misleading results. The tests are not perfect. And then not everybody's going to be compliant if they're positive and told to quarantine. So for, for all these reasons, some of the best modeling that's been done um, has suggested much more modest impacts. The Imperial Imperial College of London, for example, has a modeling study that that suggested uh, under real world conditions you only get about a ten to fifteen percent reduction with weekly uh, asymptomatic testing. Interesting. So, for some situations, ten to fifteen percent may be great. I mean, I don't know when we think about COVID nineteen spread. For some people listening, to if we can say that we're going to contain spread by ten to fifteen percent. Um, that might be worth doing. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think the question is exactly the one that you asked. Is the juice worth the squeeze? So 10%, I don't want to discount that. That would act, uh, absolutely be a, be a good benefit. But as, as you talked about, there's many intuitive benefits, but there's a number of less intuitive harms of testing. And um, for example, the fact that the test is not perfect. And that can lead to false reassurance if a test is negative and someone really is infected. That can actually be worse than not knowing the information at all. By the same token, you can get false alarms. People who test positive but are not no longer actively contagious, and we can talk about why that may be in a little more, uh, a little further along. Um, also, bringing people together to get testing can actually be a uh, an opportunity for the virus to spread. We went with our kids uh, a couple weeks ago to Universal Studios and they wanted to test everybody before they went inside. And so there were about 350 people all in this small tunnel waiting to get tested. And gosh, uh, that didn't seem like such such a good idea. And then not to mention, of course, the, the cost of testing. Is, is this really the best use of our resources? So there's a lot of downsides and we need to weigh that 10 to 15% against those uh, concerns. So in talking about testing, just to just to clarify, I know there's a couple of options out there that that bring a lot of confusion for uh, for people. Can you talk about the two main options: PCR testing and rapid antigen testing? Um, what the be benefits of each test is and what the drawbacks are? Sure. So the two main tests, as you said, are the PCR test and the antigen test. The first is the PCR test. The good thing about that is it's very accurate. What it does is it looks for little pieces of genetic material, the RNA uh, from the virus, and that it amplifies it. Um, and it can be very, very effective at telling if there's any vi virus around or, or has been recently. Um, and uh, the, the downside of, of PCR testing is that it does take at least several hours and in many cases uh, a day or two to get the results. Another big downside is it is, uh, is very expensive. Can you, do you know exactly how expensive it is? How expensive are we talking? It varies, but 85 to to $100 approximately per test. 
And then at the other end of the uh, spectrum, there are these antigen tests. And the the good thing about these are they're cheap. They're about uh, 10% the cost of the PCR test, about $10 or even less the actual cost of making the test. And the other huge benefit of the antigen test is that you get the result right away and you can act on it. You don't need to wait on the result, call, call the person and the patient and follow up. So, so I think for those reasons, it's been really underutilized. The problem with antigen testing and the reason that the FDA has been so cautious about it is it really is much less accurate. Um, it only catches about 60 to 70 percent of the people who really are positive. Um, and so, you know, the, the test isn't done properly. It can be even higher than that. So, so that's the downside of the antigen test. And just to make this point, if the antigen test is positive, though, it's probably positive, correct? Yeah, the antigen uh, looks for actual viral particles. So if those are detected in a sample, um, there's not too many reasons that that would be falsely positive if the test is run correctly. The PCR test, on the other hand, may pick up residual genetic material from a virus that was there a long time ago. There's still just a little genetic material around. It still gets amplified and comes back positive. So there can be more false alarms with the PCR test. Okay, so now I want to talk about a situation that a lot of us face, and that is testing at schools. Um, you did already talk about some of the drawbacks to testing, um, but I thought we could, you know, maybe maybe talk about it a little bit more. Um, so first, what kind of testing is done at most schools? Well, I certainly can speak to our children's school, which is the LA Unified School District, they do PCR tests. They do it on a weekly basis. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very costly. Um, the LA Times reported that the school district is spending about $350 million this year on uh, testing. Um, you know, California does have one of the lowest per pupil uh, um, reimbursement rates uh, of any place in, in the country. And LA, Uni LA Unified is, is definitely a poorer district. So that's a lot of money, $350 million that could be used for other things. Um, as, as you know, we need to raise money for our specialty teachers, our gym teachers, our art teachers. So, so one, one immediate question is, uh, you know, is that really the best use of, of those, of that money? No, absolutely. I think, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I initially liked testing was because our school was closed for over a year. And I think that implementing measures like testing and masking, it allowed parents and teachers to feel more comfortable with returning to school. Um, you know, gave parents a sense, okay, well, at least we'll know when kids go to school, who's positive, who's not. But I do think as we really, you know, think about it and, and see what's actually happening in reality, um, there's definitely a lot of a holes to this method. Um, the first, as you pointed out, you know, PCR testing, because that's what's done at our children's school and it takes time to come back, you know, one has to wonder if you send your child to school um, and then the next day it turns out they were positive, they've already most likely, you know, been at school infecting their classmates potentially when they have the most viral load, right? That's right. So weekly testing in, in a lot of ways is neither here nor there. If you look at the mathematical models, to really have a big impact, you need to be testing almost on a daily basis. Uh, if you test once a week and the results come back 24 to 48 hours later, 
you're actually going to get your result after the time when it's useful to you. Right. And that's the reason why they really probably should be doing an antigen test rather than a PCR test. Uh, and, and secondly, that's only one day of the week. Well, what about the other six days of the week? So so the the, the actual benefit is, is at best 10 to 15%. And what about, I mean, I think, you know, I think about in our situation, we once had our daughter come back positive and then there's the other piece of it where, you know, our, the, her siblings, our, our other children had to stay home for a couple of weeks. And then the difficulty with, you know, missing school, catching up with schoolwork, and then parents having to figure out childcare. I think there's um, a lot to think about beyond the positive tests. Well, back to my mom's advice. The more you test, the more problems you find. And, uh, you know, th there certainly are a lot of kids who are left home from school. If there was a huge benefit from this, that that might be worth it. But, you know, this pandemic has evolved a lot. Um, you know, we're, we're at a point where a lot of people are vaccinated, certainly the most vulnerable. Uh, this new strain is, is very, very contagious. So, you know, uh, uh, testing measures are probably less effective at preventing it because it is so um, contagious. And the good thing is it does seem to be uh, somewhat weakened compared to the original strains of the virus. So it's it's starting slowly and slowly to look more and more like flu. Right. And, you know, during regular flu season, we don't do regular testing because it just isn't practical to do. So, you know, as as we shift, um, we, we probably do need to evolve our thinking to more of a philosophy that we do during typical cold and flu season. I mean, I really think about this. I wonder if we just really, really honed in the advice that people stay home when they're sick, you know, really don't come back to school till they're feeling better. I, I wonder if we would capture most of it if kids just truly stayed home when they were feeling sick. Yeah, it's the old 80-20 rule in public health. Uh, in many cases, 20% of the effort, you can get 80% of the benefit. So if we really tried to be sticklers and if kids were sick, and that's probably something we should be doing a better job during flu season anyway for other viruses, we'd probably get 80% of the benefit that we do from these other more extensive and expensive measures. And Mike, I'm just curious your thoughts. Do you think, you know, when rates are high, it's worth doing more testing and maybe when rates drop, we we stop the testing or, or what do you, when do you think we can have COVID look more like, you know, flu and cold season? Well, there's so many factors when rates are high, testing becomes quite impractical. Um, contact tracing is an effective strategy, you know, when there's small outbreaks and you want to prevent them from spreading or rare cases. So it's been really effective with Hantavirus, with Ebola, uh, a, no, a number of other situations like that, but it just it it's not practical to do for more widespread infections like flu or colds during during cold season. And the other thing you need to consider is um, what are the implications? What are the health outcomes of of getting uh, coronavirus in in children? Um, you know, fortunately, and this is not in any way to dismiss that that it can be a very serious infection, but but thankfully, in most cases, kids do very very well, and uh, you know when they do get infected, um, that that helps build immunity. And that's not to say that vaccines aren't also incredibly important, but a combination of vaccination and natural immunity are are what's going to shift this to look more like a flu season rather than uh, a pandemic. I definitely have noticed a change in. Um, parents' feelings towards COVID. I think especially as more and more people are getting COVID and they, you know, thankfully for my patients, um, 
you know, the kids have recovered. And I think it sort of demystified the illness and taken away some of the fear for them. One other thing I'm hearing in my practice as a, as a pediatrician, a lot of kids really don't like getting tested. Um, you know, some kids don't mind it. They get swabbed in the nose and they're very compliant and very easy about it. But there's a, a number of kids that really resist testing. They don't like it. And so I think that's another consideration. And the adults can be even worse <laughs> in my practice. Is that true? <laughs> I've seen some tears. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think that's another thing to think about that testing does have, you know, it is uncomfortable. Um, okay. So you had mentioned um, that and sometimes there, there is a role for testing um, when, in your mind, when it changes management. Are there any other times that you think testing is beneficial? There's absolutely an important role for testing. If it's going to change management, so somebody has symptoms and you want to know whether to use it, they're at high risk for complications, and you want to use one of these newer medications like Paxlovid or Remdesivir, or you want to know whether they're dealing with a bacterial pneumonia and they need antibiotics, there's absolutely a role in a situation like that of, of testing and finding out what you're dealing with. Maybe it is influenza and, and Tamiflu is the right medication. So that's, that's one reason. Another thing that the, the CDC does during flu season was, is what's called sentinel surveillance testing. And that's random sampling of the population to give a general sense to clinicians out there, doctors out there, yeah, we're seeing an uptick in Los Angeles this week of flu. So if someone comes in with fever and cough and chills, it's quite likely to be uh, influenza. So I, I absolutely see an important role for coronavirus um, uh, with the surveillance testing and, and again, testing people who are symptomatic if it's going to impact treatment decisions. I would also throw in there, um, I think it's helpful when you are going to see somebody who's you know, elderly, medically fragile, um, I think the rapid antigen tests are great for a situation because if you test yourself and you're positive, uh, that's... That's a great point. There are certain people who are very vulnerable. And if you're a family who's going to visit an older relative or someone who's immunosuppressed or someone who was not able for whatever reason to get the vaccine... Um, to do a rapid antigen right before you're going to see them just to provide an added sense of security, I think that's an absolutely reasonable use of testing. Now, question for you. Um, if schools or like, let's say our, our children's school, for example, could use rapid antigen testing where we got results in real time and we could, we could identify children um, before they enter school, is that something that you think would be, would be okay or, or preferable? My personal view is at this stage of the pandemic and given the outcomes in children, that the benefits of widespread asymptomatic testing just are not worth it. We've certainly seen a number of districts that have not done testing and the sky has not fallen down. So my view is that that's not a, a, a productive strategy to go down. With that said, in school districts like ours that are doing the testing, and if they're, they really feel adamantly that it's the right thing to do in their district, um, I do think the rapid antigen test is a much better thing to do than the PCR test because it is cheaper and you get those immediate results. So if you had to pick one or the other, you, it sounds like you'd pick the rapid antigen test. But overall, it sounds like there might be more uh, unintended consequences than benefit in your view. Yeah, I think as you put it in the beginning, the juice just in my view, is not worth the squeeze. All right. So another question for you. If uh, you were in charge of policy 
uh, testing policy. Can I ask you honestly, what, what would you do? Like if you were in charge of, you know, asymptomatic testing for, for schools, for example, how would that look if you were making the decisions? Well, like I said before, you know, my view is that uh, I, I, would not, I would not do asymptomatic r- random testing uh, for, for children. I just don't think with the way the pandemic is shaping up at this point that, it, that it's a practical thing to do. Um, you know, I, I just think that there's a lot of better impact things that we can do for our children's health to pay for mental health resources in schools, to you know, hire more gym and art teachers. You know, this pandemic has really caused a, an epidemic of obesity. Kids are not active enough. And, you know, certainly the LA Unified School Districts does not fund universal gym teachers. Um, I, I would be directing those resources more to those types of services. And what would you say for families that feel safer because there is some testing before schools? I mean, I think, I think that's what's so tricky is that a lot of parents really do feel a sense of security because testing is implemented. Yeah, I do think there's a lot of mixed messages out there. Um, if you read the news or watch CNN, uh, it's very scary. Uh, you know, there's there's cases of long COVID in children. But, you know, as always, a dis- we should be making decisions based on a dispassionate look at the data. And, uh, you know, from what I've seen, the hard data is kids do as well or better with uh, COVID-19 as they do with influenza. And, you know, for that reason, I, you know, I, I don't think we should be treating it any, any differently. Shouldn't cause us to stop our lives. You know, our, my, my uh, college uh, econ professor, she used to had some of my favorite lines ever. Um, you know, she also, she used to say there, uh, life, there's no such thing as risk-free. You can stay in your house all day if you don't want to take any risks. And even then you're probably going to get overweight and diabetes and have heart disease from staying in the house. Um, she also used to say, you know, we always would ask the question, is this homework assignment optional? And she would say, life is optional. You know, you don't, (laughs) you don't have to engage in, in anything. So, um, you know, I, I, I do think that that's, uh, an applicable philosophy at the moment. That living life comes with some amount of inherent risk. That's right. There, we, we do many more risky things than send our children to school. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hockman. Thank you, Mikey. Um, thank you for coming on Ask Dr. Jessica. I hope, I hope you come back. I would be delighted to if I'm given the chance. Thanks for having Next me. Week.